0: well and I'm actually in my new coveted space I'd love this where I'm at it's in the basement of all places so I come here on Sunday afternoons kind of like to get myself mentally prepared for the week if I can come to my basement about one, two o'clock and spend until dinner down here. That's what I I do. My home is my castle and no one comes into it. I don't allow people into my castle or into my home. I keep it very separate. People tease me about it and I'm like, I don't, I still don't, I will, I still won't let them in. (laughs) Like I've had people who've told me their goal is to get into my house. I'm like, "Hmm, not going to happen. I don't know how you're going to get in. You're going to have to break in to get in because... I will meet you outside. I don't let you close to my door. My staff, the people I work with at work, and then some close friends of mine, like they think it's funny. There are actually a couple people who told me they were going to camp out on my driveway and just sit out there and do a bonfire until I let them in my house. (laughs) Well, you're going to be sitting out there a long time.
1: The Story Enneagram podcast. I'm Jim Gum, and I'm an Enneagram teacher and coach living in Kansas City. Today, we're going to hear from some self preservation fives as part of this season's series on the self preservation subtypes. The Enneagram self preservation five is called Castle. They are private, hidden, and self sufficient. They seek to live an ideal life where they can control their place in the world and all their needs self-preservation five is the most introverted of all the types their imagination of a castle would come with both a moat and a drawbridge have you ever wondered why some people just need more alone time than others today we're going to listen to stories from self-preservation fives to understand their thoughts and how they're expressed in living up to their ideals as you heard Christy share in the opening self-preservation fives value their time alone the retreat allows them to clear their head and prepare for what's to come listen to how alan describes his experience
2: yeah so i you know i have a pretty regular nine to five schedule um and i have a couple of things that i have in the evenings, like a small group that meets once a week and then i go see a counselor every other week and on the weeks where I have both of those things in the week, I feel like I don't have any time left. And I freak out. And if anybody wants me to do anything, I'm like, no, I am busy. Two of the seven nights of the week are gone. And I don't know when the laundry's going to get done. The dog isn't going to get walked. I'm going to die. I won't be able to sleep. I, I guard my time and the buffer time. Even even in our scheduling for today, I was thinking I was like, "Well, I've got the, the ten o'clock, but I've got... Uh, uh, I don't like it's Saturday. I literally have nothing that I have to do."
1: Listen to how Alexander describes his experience.
3: So I think the struggle is that I believe the term that my wife and I use is, "I will hermit up if need be." If I've had like a hard day, I'm cool with just being in a dark room by myself for a while. So I think basically the thing is, like, I'm drawn to that where some people might be drawn to cleaning or walking or, you know, other coping strategies that don't involve you hiding from the sun. So I think that's kind of like my natural inclination. And the struggle with that is that when you do that, you get out on things. You're in your room in the dark, just, you know, trying to recharge and life is happening out there.
1: Alexander and his wife called it hermiting up. Alan measures the number of evenings he's going to be out in a week. Christy has created a sanctuary in her home. Enneagram fives are keenly aware of conserving their resources, whether it be time, energy, or money. They count the cost before committing to anything. They're the type of person who will ask questions like, How long will this take? Or... When am I free to leave? Looking back, Christy considers how she was different than her peers.
0: I wouldn't say that I would have recognized it early on, but now looking back, um, when I was in high school, my friends would want to go out. They always went out on Friday, Saturday night. And I would be like, Can't go out tonight, you know, one at least one night a weekend, or like either Friday or Saturday, I would not go out. And they're like, Why, why can't you go out? And I'd be like, I gotta clean my bedroom. <laughs> And that's exactly what I would tell them. I was like, I got to clean my bedroom. But and that's probably what I did. I mean, I stayed home probably in my room and it wasn't that I was separate from my like I didn't interact with my family. I did, but I just really liked my space, my my area.
1: And here's Alexander sharing about how others perceived his time.
3: I think the real struggle has just honestly been kind of like what you said previously, like being sort of paranoid about that. Like I will guard my time. I will put up boundaries where perhaps they don't need to be around my time. And that's, that's not helpful when people want to say, spend time with you or when things that you don't really want to do need to be done and that kind of thing. Um, and I think one of the struggles is that, you can kind of get to a point where other people will assume that you have a boundary around your time, even if in this particular instance, for whatever reason, you don't. And so that's kind of one thing that I've noted and needs to be have needed to be kind of aware of, because you get to a point when where people start trying to see if you're available, because they're like, okay, well, he's not. And I think that's kind of been avoiding avoiding that while also trying to have boundaries and have people respect them around my time is kind of a a struggle. Like, you don't want people to believe, necessarily, that you're unavailable. But at the same time, you don't want to be always
2: available. And here's Alan again. I think the one that, that caught my attention the most was not wasting time. And it's sort of this, like, hoarding tendency that I, I keep a well-stocked pantry, but I didn't realize that I did that with my time as a resource and not just food. I mean, I don't like hoard food, but I you know I could I could go a week without leaving the house. But I do that with time, too. Like I build in lots of buffer time.
1: One of the most important things to realize about Enneagram type fives is that there's a very good reason they have to conserve their resources. They're sensitive. One of my teachers says that fives are the conduit for the entire universe. If you are that sensitive, you need to take regular breaks so your circuits don't get overloaded. It's hard to get a read on a type five because so much of their experience is internalized. Listen to how Christy describes how this shows up in her work life.
0: What I like about counseling is actually the analytical part of it, where a lot of people, when they are counselors or in that kind of a helping is because, and this is going to sound horrible, and I don't mean to, but they're in that role to help people. It's a challenge to figure out what's going on. And that's what I like. I want to put that puzzle together and see what it looks like. That's the part that I like in terms of working with people is figuring out who they are or, you know, the student success part. How can I help them be successful in what they're doing? What resource can I come up with? What's going to help them be successful in school? So one of the things that I do that I have, that I consciously do is I work on not showing expression. In my head, I'm thinking, just keep a straight face, keep a straight face. But in terms of sensing of other on others, I pick up on things with individuals so I scare myself sometimes because I'm like, oh my gosh, I really figured that person out, kind of figured out what was going on or what was really behind what was happening and sensing an individual.
1: Alexander shares about how his facial expressions can be misunderstood.
3: There have been occasions with some people that I've worked with, with Sarah sometimes even, where the fact that I'm relaxed comes across as I don't care. Like, I sound what I think I'm sounding like is I'm formulating a plan. We got this. We can do. I feel like I'm sounding encouraging. What it sounds like is flippant, apparently. (laughs) So that's something that you kind of you kind of got to watch out for when you kind of have that disassociation thing. People don't always like the fact that you're disassociating a little bit. Like they kind of want you to be feeling the feelings with them. That. Is not something that I do on purpose, if that makes sense.
2: And here's Alan again. Yeah, I remember when I told my parents that I was moving here from Louisville. I said, yeah, so I'm moving to Kansas City. And they're like, what? And I was like, you know, got a job, blah, blah. And they're like, Dad says, well, I don't like it. Like, wait, 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 you speak? And I'm like, okay. But he's, he's always been after me. He says, he, I think he thinks I'm impulsive because he, he thinks I just make rash decisions. They look that way because nobody has watched me process through and filter out the decision tree of what am I going to do about X, Y, or Z. So people often find my moves um, out of the blue. It catches them off guard, and I'm like, "What? How, no, like this isn't new. Yeah, yeah, I've been working on it. Like I, like I have mapped this out in my head for the last six months."
1: If you're in a relationship with a five, you may experience them only sharing on a need-to-know basis. Their minds are always a hive of activity, but it's hard to tell from the outside. Enneagram fives are looking for an ideal. For the self-preservation five, it's the ideal way to live. For them, it can best be described as self-sufficiency. Christy talks about how she learned this lesson early in life.
0: You know, growing up, I always had to be able to take care of myself. That was why it was important for me to go to school and to have a careers because I didn't want to have to rely on anybody. I always wanted to be able to take care of myself. My mom used to tell me that all the time. She would always tell me, don't rely on a man to take care of you. And so that was the message I always heard from my mom was, not to ever have anybody to rely on. You need to be You need to be able to take care of yourself.
1: And here's how Alan's upbringing affected him.
2: I'm a big boy and I can take care of it. And I mean, I grew up on a farm. So on a farm, you may or may not have a mechanic. You may or may not have a plumber. You just fix it. And so some of my friends are like, you, you mean you can fix that? You can do that. And I'm like, well, yeah, like nobody else can do it for you. Like the dryer is lying in pieces and the living room is like, what else am I going to do with other work? You know, Got to be fit. So, you know, I value that. I mean, you should have seen me. I had a, in my little apartment, I was like, I had the whole thing dug out because I had to replace the heating element in the dryer. It was like a Tuesday night. I was like, I'm not going to want anybody to do that. Like, I have a screwdriver. I have Amazon. I can buy a part. Like, you know, I, I don't need, I don't need an army of caretakers. And
1: here's Alexander again. So, I think one
3: kind of thing that we kind of saw like in sort of the lead up and also just kind of immediately following Emile's birth was that Sarah and I would have kind of different strategies of how to comfort ourselves with information. As you might imagine, my natural inclination is to just look everything up as soon as a conversation topic steers in that direction. She's a lot more inclined to kind of interact with other people. Like she'll have her sister or she'll have her mom or she'll have uh, some of her friends or her kids, that sort of thing. And me, I'll just Google everything and I'll end up in Wikipedia or somewhere or something read by pediatrics. And I think like that's just kind of a different strategy thing. I do think of the two of us, I have more of the high odds of getting lost in a tangent. Like I will be looking at this thing and that will lead me looking at this thing and that will lead me looking look at this thing. Meanwhile, Sarah's asked the question, and got the answer and that's fine. And I'm just over here looking up tangential related topics. Very educational, it's great, but it's not really helpful.
1: Enneagram fives bring many strengths to bear. They can be incredibly perceptive and thoughtful. They're not prone to make rash decisions or silly mistakes. They tend to always think things through. The rationality can be a huge asset when others lose their cool. Listen to how Alexander describes his experience at work as a network engineer.
3: I tend to be pretty relaxed about what's going on. Um, and that, I think, can be helpful in a situation where it's easy to have high emotions getting into the situation. A lot of times, people in management can kind of take things personal. I don't really have that as much. And so I think that's kind of helpful. Like, you're in meetings and calls where people have a lot of investment in technical considerations, a lot of investment in issues. And it's I think it's kind of helpful for me to just be kind of able to put the... I octane side of it aside and stay in the process a little bit better i honestly first noticed it in the development slash supporting side because we'd be dealing with all these sort of fire drills like some server was down clients were yelling yada 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 and there would be a lot of panic happening over there. <laughs> and I'd just be, you know, okay, we need to try this. We should try this. We should try this. And I didn't really notice I was doing it until like one of my managers at the time, we were working on an issue and I was like, okay, this thing happened. Then I was like, oh, we need to do this. This thing happened. Oh, we need to do this. This thing happened. Oh, we need to do this. And then he just stops and stares at me. And it's like, you are so calm. How are you so calm <laughs> doing this? I was like, well, <laughs> we'll fix it every we won't.
1: You've heard it said that you should never judge a book by its cover. That statement is the truest for the self-preservation five. Their emotions and sensitivity are hidden. When I tell fives that they're the most sensitive of all the types, they nod their heads. All of the Enneagram types can examine their beliefs and grow beyond their typical ways of thinking, feeling, or acting. I'd like to close with Alan's thoughts and how they're challenging him in a very healthy way.
2: It's interesting. I've been thinking about it for a long time. I don't know where I read it in an article or heard about it on the radio. And somehow I heard that you know there was some study or something about people make better decisions when they have a mindset of plenty over a mindset of scarcity. And so I thought about that and I'm like, okay, how do I self-correct a little bit to, to not make bad decisions out of fear or to see if I'm making a decision out of fear Whatever it is, whether it's buying, you know, ten times the pasta that I need at Costco, how am I? How am I making decisions and and taking into consideration plenty because there is enough. I'm okay. Like it's, I will be fine. Another way is that I've seen it in this mindset of, well, I admire generous people and I want to be generous, and I feel like that's a weird thing to want because it's, do I want to be seen to be generous or do I actually want to? To take on generosity because I think it's a value or a thing I want for myself. It's a characteristic that I want. That's been a really good counterweight for the scarcity because it it uncomfortably impinges on that nerve of scarcity to say, no, it's okay. And it's sort of this, it's a discipline against scarcity. And it's hard to do, but I think it's a nice balance. The other the other side to that is just the scarcity versus plenty. And this was something that that I didn't really realize until just a few years ago spiritually with my relationship with God, was that God is not a God who runs out of resources. He doesn't have limited resources.
1: He doesn't have limited resources. What a crazy and wonderful thought. There'll always be enough. <music> That's it for this episode of the Story Enneagram podcast. Thanks for listening. If you or someone you know is a five who feels like they never have enough, you've come to the right place. Wouldn't it be great to realize that the fear of not having enough is just as limiting as actually not having enough? Visit my website at storyenneagram.com. I offer Enneagram team-building experiences and training for businesses, schools, and nonprofits. I also offer personal coaching packages for individuals or couples. Drop me a line and let's explore what the Enneagram can do for you. Please subscribe to the Story Enneagram Podcast. Share it with your friends and family. And if you're really feeling it, leave a rating in Apple Podcasts. I'd appreciate it. Our music is by Daniel Gum. You can hear his music on Spotify or wherever you get your music. And yes, we do have the same last name. Story Enneagram, where learning your type is just the beginning of a whole new story.